The Pursuit of Happiness Discovering our strengths, improving relationships, making stress work for us, understanding the difference between harmonious passions and obsessive ones. Those are just a few of the topics covered in this episode. It'll provoke thoughts and give you some tools to pursue whatever happiness and fulfillment means to you. If you're listening with someone, you're probably going to want to hit pause and discuss some of these ideas. That's what Jennifer and I did when we listened to our guest's book, You Thrive. I am with my dear friend, Dan Lerner, sought-after speaker, author, performance coach, and professor at NYU who co-teaches the science of happiness, which is always the most popular elective class at NYU. Who would want to sign up for the science of happiness? Dan, welcome. Before we get going, I want everybody listening, all of us, to get in the proper headspace to absorb all the ideas and the tools that we're going to talk about in this hour. So I'd like you to take all of us through the exercise you take your students through right at the start of the first class. Sure, you got it. So this is a pretty simple exercise. I'm going to walk you through it. Uh, not too fancy, won't be graded. Just if you'd like to close your eyes, wonderful. If you don't want to, equally wonderful. Uh, but what I want you to do is very simple. For the next 30 seconds, I, I want you to think of the happiest memory that you can. Whatever comes to mind first and bring that to life. I want you to think about where you were. You can think about who you were with. You can think about what activity you were doing, what made it so happy for you. And really try to bring back those feelings Really take yourself back to where you were. And, and not only happiness, but what kind of happiness you were feeling. Were you, were you like jumping for joy with a friend? Was it, was it a sense of calm where you just felt at ease, at peace? Was it a sense of pride at something you had just accomplished? Was it love? Were you with somebody who you cared really deeply about? Just really bring that to life for yourself. Let yourself smile. You may already be doing that. I think most of us are by now. That was a very vivid, (laughs) that was a very vivid description. I hope everybody out there can think of many wonderful, happy moments in their life to choose from, but maybe the ones they choose does reveal a lot about them. I mean, how often do you suggest people do that to get in a proper headspace? So often we're told, no, no. Forget the past, the future. They they don't exist. We just have this moment. The present moment is all we have. What's the power of going back to something positive? Well, positive emotions change the way that our brains work. And so when I when I use that in class, or when I use it in 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 the professional world, when I'm I'm talking to a client or I'm talking to a large audience, um, what I basically say is, look, now you're primed. I mean, when we ask uh, professionals or college students to think of the happiest memory they can for thirty seconds. If you then teach them words in a foreign language, they're going to retain about 35% more words. If you ask professionals to do exactly what we just did, what every listener just did, if they were, as long as they were, um, as long as they were participating, 
And then you give them a test of creativity. How many uses can you think of for this pen or this paperclip? On average, you come up with about 70% more. So whether it's five-year-olds or doctors who diagnose more quickly, um, you have these benefits that come with positive emotions. And so, you know, I, I might not ask them to do that on a regular basis, but simply knowing that when you do this, you're better prepped for test taking, for memory, for creativity, for performance. Even if you look at managers and how they rate the folks who work for them, they rate their folks who are happier, is more creative, is more dependable. So, and it's doing better quality work. So it's such a quick example and it's such an easy example. It took 30 seconds, boom, we're all ready for this podcast and we're gonna engage in this podcast in a way we might not have had we started off by saying, I want you to think of something that, that really brings you down, right? What, what about the power of negative emotions to drag us down and, and the importance of, if you can't summon a positive mindset, at least aim for neutrality, Dan, and, and don't let the, <laughs> the negative side pull you down. Because I've heard plenty of sports psychologists and, and psychologists, period, say that, hey, we, we can't bounce around being po positive and optimistic, but, but try to avoid spiraling to the negative. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So here's the thing about negative emotions. They matter. They're important. You want them. Look, you want to be scared. We've been scared for 60,000 years. Since the first cave person was running away from the first saber-toothed tiger, you don't want to be like, oh, cool. I'm just going to think positively and everything will be okay. No, you want to have fight or flight. It's important. It, it, tell, it warns us of things. But there are certain times when we want to be able to focus on the good things. So for example, and I, I almost bring it back to you, Chris, you know, for an athlete, whether you're playing golf, baseball, tennis, doesn't matter. You want to be in the moment, of course. But when you start thinking about um, uh, past shots, you don't want to remember the last bad shot you had, the last bad at bat you had. You want to remember that you are able, you're capable of making these shots. You want to remember the practice you put in, how hard you've worked. So you want to remember something that allows you to go, no, I'm ready for this moment. So it doesn't always have to be happy and bouncing, no question. And you, you notice I, I mentioned calm, for example. Calm is under the umbrella of positive emotions. We often think big smile on your face, jumping up and down. That's not the only kind of positive emotions. Sometimes it's just tranquil, right? We'll get to calm later, calm and the flow sake, because that really interests me, and that's something that you are an expert in. Optimist and pessimist. I mean, binary labels can be dangerous. We're all wired in complex ways, but you do write about optimism and pessimism, whether or not they're innate to some degree, whether they can be learned, you know, to what degree you can become more optimistic if you desire to. And, yeah. and you define optimist as someone who just has more hope or more confidence in a better outcome. That's sort of your definition. Yep. I mean, it's, that's sort of the standard definition that you'll find <clears throat> hope and confidence in the future, right? And, as opposed to say lack of hope or lack of confidence about the future. And um, it's interesting because folks listening out there, if we ask the question, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? A lot of folks are going to raise your hand for one or the other. Some people are going to raise their hand for both. And some people are going to say, whoa, 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 I'm a realist, right? And that is a perfectly acceptable answer. Um, the answer for optimism and pessimism is that there's, there's a place, again, sort of like emotions, there's a place for both. Um, there are huge benefits to being optimistic. So if we look at optimists uh, as college students, they tend to have higher GPAs and better social experiences. If we look at optimists in the workplace, they tend to bounce back, be more resilient in the face of, of challenges. So I think it's, it, it comes up in a big way in sport. 
everyone's going to strike out. Everyone's going to drop a pass. No one throws a hundred percent completion percentage. No one's going to, you know, no one's going to be able to eagle every hole in the golf course. So when you hit that bogey, when you don't sell whatever it is that you're selling in your workplace, you got to bounce back. And the original uh, data that came out on, on optimism and pessimism, which comes from uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, a mentor of mine at University of Pennsylvania, um, he was looking at insurance salespeople. And you know the retention rate there was horrible. It was like 90% of people were leaving within the first three years. So how do you fix that? What's going on? Well, look, back in the day, you're making phone calls all day long, right? And everyone's saying, no, no, it's the middle of dinner. Why don't you give me your number and I'll call you during dinner, right? So you're getting <laughs> to right. And like, how do you bounce back from that? Like people, and I'm being nice with my language here, right? So what they found was that folks who had an optimistic explanatory style tended to, to be far more resilient. That is to say, three things. It's temporary, it's local, and it's, um, and it's external. So like, let's bring it back to sport. So you want to have a short memory. So mm -hmm. learned optimism is, oh, that guy's playing really well today. Not I'm always going to get home runs hit off me, but that guy is playing well today. It's not me. By the way, it's not the game tomorrow, right? So again, we go back to business and you get hung up on when you're trying to sell something. Oh, that guy's having a rough day or I'm due because I've had five no's in a row. I don't get six no's in a row. So when it comes to learned optimism, a lot of it is how we talk about bad events. Something went wrong. Maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was, uh, and maybe it's not going to happen tomorrow. And by the way, it's not my whole life. It's one sales call, not my family, not my friends. So how we talk about things as opposed to a pessimistic explanatory style, which is, oh, well, clearly it's me. Clearly I can't sell. And clearly if I can't sell here, then maybe people don't like me, including my family and friends. And you know, that man, a woman walking down the street who I'm interested in. Right. So it like it, that's when you start to get to that spiral. When you talk about things that don't go well as in terms of like forever stuff, mm -hmm. right. When you start using the language. Otherwise you start to uh, kind of nurture self-talk that is, Oh, next time it'll be different. Right, that kind of sales departments have solved that problem of the incessant notes by having robots do what humans used to do. Now you get those called, hi, this is Stan from the Auto Resource Center. And, and, and they, they just hang up on them and no one's self-esteem gets crushed because the, the, the computer doesn't know. I'm surprised so many hands would shoot up when you ask, are they pessimists? They, you know, accepting that label seems different from the folks who walk around saying, well, wait a minute. I just, I like to brace for negative outcomes because then I'll be ready for them and it'll be easier to handle. I mean, yep. my counterpoint is, yeah, the, but then you're going to walk around bracing for negative outcomes, most of which will never happen. And what does that do to your psyche? But I understand that mindset. We've seen plenty of it with COVID-19 people bracing against the worst possible outcome and, and having that dominate their mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when it comes to pessimism, pessimism can be a really, really good thing. Again, it's kind of like emotions. And, and by the way, it's, it's really interesting stuff in the research. If you are a pessimist, if, if, if you don't see the world in an optimistic way, trying to turn you into an optimist can almost be detrimental, right? Because you don't really buy it. You don't really believe it. What you want to do is you want to use that pessimism in the right place to the right amount, right? The right time. It's called defensive pessimism. If you are pessimistic about going up on stage and doing a talk, well, you know, I, I, there's no way it's going to go well. All right, talk to me about that. What are you What are you concerned about? Well, I'm concerned that I'll get dry mouth. Okay, let's plan for that. Let's bring a bottle of water, maybe two bottles of water up there. I'm afraid that I'm going to forget my lines. Okay, let's plan for that. So defensive pessimism allows us to plan. With college students, it's I better study harder. 
okay, study harder, right? And, you know, in the workplace, it's I need to prepare differently in order to be in that place. So defensive pessimism is good. The challenges with pessimism is we use them too much, even when we win, even when we get the good grade in the test, we win the game, we make the sale. We don't enjoy the outcome as much as optimists do. So finding the right place for each of those in our lives is, is really important. None of us are all optimists or all pessimists. That would be called mania or depression. And you know, you'd have much bigger issue. And some of us, all of us will have optimism or pessimism about something specific in our lives. I'm pretty optimistic that when I give a talk or teach a class tomorrow, it's going to go well. I, I'm pretty pessimistic about my golf game because <laughs> uh, right? I know that, <laughs> you know, so you, you pick it. the club. That, that's right. That's right. You know, I, so, you see so much defensive pessimism in sports, too. I think coaches that we have to prepare to avoid the mistake and be ready to bounce back when it happens. And hating a loss is so much more prevalent than enjoying and loving and savoring a win. So, I, I mean, there's plenty of obviously hyper successful pessimists out there who use it in the way you just described to to rededicate themselves and work harder. I think that's, that's interesting to know because pessimists out there, you're not doomed to unhappy you're lives. Not doomed. You're not alone. You're actually, you know, you can be in pretty decent shape. It's got to find a little room for optimism. Uh, Having an engaged life, Dan, you write about that, and and the awareness of our strengths. And we were talking the other day, and it surprised me how many folks walking around out there, not just your students who are still trying to figure themselves out at 18, 19 years old, but but adults are not fully aware of what their own strengths are and how to use them. A vast majority of them. Numbers that I've seen from Gallup organization they hover around 17 to 20%. 17 to 20% of people don't know their strengths and don't use them on a regular basis, right? Now we're not talking about strengths like skills, how well you shoot a ball, how well you sell a product, how well you draw up a marketing plan or design a PowerPoint. We're talking about character strengths, which are very different, right? Character strengths and values are things that, uh, that flow throughout our lives. So a character strength might be bravery. Uh, and that bravery, we might think of like, oh, a firefighter who runs into a burning building. That bravery also might be, um, raising your hand in a, cloud, in a crowded classroom. That bravery might be walking up to a coach and asking them a question that when that coach can be kind of intimidating, right? That's bravery. And so if one of your strengths is bravery, using it not only um, helps you feel good, but it helps you perform better and it helps you get, become more engaged. Um, you know, when it, comes to, um, when it comes to strengths, most of us can't identify them. And what's interesting is a lot of us don't see our strengths as strengths. So Chris, you and I were talking the other day about uh, a client that I had um, uh, who's a CEO uh, of, a, of a sizable organization. And when he took a strengths assessment, uh, assess an assessment that I want to share at some point on this show, maybe you can share afterwards. It's free, everybody. It's free. Um, he found <laughs> his number one strength was fairness. And he was like, fairness? You know, he's like this big CEO. Look, that's not a strength. And I'm like, all right, let's talk about this for a second. How have you promoted people in your company? He's like, well, I always promote them when they've worked really hard. I, I'd rather promote them in that way than hire stars from the outside. I'm like, what do you call that? He goes, I guess that would be fairness. He goes, but everyone's fair. And I, and I said, dude, you worked on Wall Street for 10 years. Was everyone fair? No, not everyone is fair. And so then he took it back to his family. And his wife was like, yes, you're, you, you, we have six kids. And you are very, very even-handed with each of them. And when we talk to other folks, you, you think about things very fairly, like, she was bringing up ideas that he hadn't seen. So for a lot of us, our strengths are, we see them, we go, not a strength. And when we take them to somebody else, a close friend or family member, they're like all day long. It's pretty clear, Chris, that you know, 
you, you, I, my, my bet is you took the assessment, curiosity, love of learning, those things would be way, way up there for you because you're a curious person who loves to learn. It, it, it's obvious and maybe it's obvious to you. But one of the great things about using strengths is that, um, uh, is that, and this leads to engagement, right? It's one of the most, most, most uh, direct paths to engagement that we know. Now, engagement often, a lot of listeners here will, will know that as the term flow or getting into the zone, right? When you get into a place where you lose track of time, you, like you look down, you've been reading or playing a sport or in the garden or cooking or having a conversation or whatever. And you're like, how did two hours fly by? That is often engagement, right? You just lose track and you feel no emotion in those moments. You don't feel emotion until the moment you're done. And then you, um, and you come out of it and you're like, whoa, that was amazing, right? So being in that space is an amazing place to be. Using strengths is often the most direct path becoming engaged. Yeah, I love the topic of flow state because, man, is it needed in lives. And I, there are so many people who, who bounce between boredom, disengagement, and anxiety. And I, I think the flow state can only operate right in the space between those two things. If you're bored, you're, you're, not, you're not in flow. If you're too anxious, when, when I get ready for a broadcast, I try to find the headspace. And, and you know, flow state isn't really defined the same way by, by everybody. So I try to be more specific. I will say relaxed intensity. And that I've found over years of trial and error and not finding it and seeing what happens when you don't. That's the best headspace for, for announcing a game because you need to have the relaxation to allow the words to flow, to let whatever it is speak through you sometimes when it's very spontaneous. But if you don't have the intensity, you don't have the mental focus to be in command of the facts. And so if you can get relaxed intensity in lots of things, I don't think it's about sports broadcasting. It could be anything. But the trick is you know, how to do that and through trial and error, how to find kind of that flow because we know what it feels like. We just don't know the entry point sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, I mean, when we look at it in the research, for folks out there, just think about a, a, a chart where you have an X and Y axis, right? One axis is skill and the other axis is challenge, right? So, you know, it, to, to Chris's point, he's spot on, you know, about anxiety or boredom. If, if you have too much skill, not enough challenge, you're bored. If you play tennis against the three-year-old, providing you are not also a three-year-old, you're probably going to get bored, right? <laughs> if you play tennis, you know, against the greatest player in the world, actually, it's kind of cool. But you, you'd My probably... game is rusty. I, give me a three-year-old. I, I need to build my confidence <laughs> back up, Dan. I need to swing the racket and destroy some child. No, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I play against a lot of really good players. It's, it's good to be humble, too, sometimes. <laughs> oh, it totally is. But you, and you're finding your spot, like, right where you're meant to be that way, too, right? Like, you're finding, like, that perfect spot where your challenge and skill is there. And, and so you have to be focused, but you're not so overwhelmed that you're not relaxed. You can still be relaxed in that moment, right? And that's an amazing feeling. So being able to find that. And like I said, with, with strengths, when you incorporate a strength into that, if you go, I mean, I don't want to harp on tennis courts. We can talk about marketing plans or, or school kids. Um, if you can incorporate that bravery into the classroom, into the boardroom, into the surgical room, onto the tennis court, if you can incorporate bravery, providing it's one of your strengths, then the odds are, well, I should say the odds are better you'll get into flow. And if it's another one like, like love, and this is a fascinating one because when Angela Duckworth did her research at West Point and she looked at uh, West Point cadets, what's the number one strength that, that overall that they showed? Most people would guess it's bravery, sure. courage, teamwork, uh, um, uh, um, justice, it's love. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can't be love. You got the wrong person here. I got the wrong cadet. 
But when they so they they, it, they didn't identify love. That love just came out of the survey. That's what the that's what the survey produced. Exactly. And then they were surprised by that. Yeah, it was love was number one, and uh, they were surprised by it because they figured it'd be bravery. They think they figured it would be justice. Um, but when they talked about it, they realized, wait, I, I don't jump on a grenade because I'm brave. I jump on it because I love the soldier next to me, and that's why I do it. So you see it with certain CEOs and leaders too. They're like, they don't buy it at first, and then they're like, oh. I actually do love the folks who work for me. That's why I work so hard, right? For them, because I love them. And so once you start to dive into that process, it becomes really interesting with your work, with your family, with your friends. It's really cool. We talk about stress so much and stress is seen as a negative. Stress is proven to be debilitating to your health, mental and physical health, but erasing it doesn't seem realistic as more and more people would find it difficult to even lessen it, much less do away with it, Dan. So how can you make stress work for you? So um, let, let me, let me hammer home the point you just made real quick, Chris. What's the last thing you want someone to tell you when you are stressed out? Relax. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Calm down. I, right? I know like, that we're, we're, we're going to get to relationships. We're going to get to relationships. That's definitely the last thing you want to tell somebody else you're involved. <laughs> That's right. That's a whole, it's like a quantum leap, right? And, um, you're right. Like you want to look at them and be like, oh, oh, is that all I need to do? Oh, thank you for that advice. I'm perfectly calm now. Wonderful. <laughs> right? Like, and, and the funny thing is, is it's actually not what you want to be. So when you look at research on people and how they, handle stress best. Um, if you get them more stressed out, clearly they are not going to perform well. So if you show them videos that are stressful videos, share news that's stressful news, tell them they're about to go out and give a talk in front of 500 people who are going to judge them. Uh, it doesn't help them. Remaining calm, saying remain calm, doesn't really help much either. The, the, the theme that runs throughout what's most helpful is using and reframing that stress, right? So helping someone get excited is where we often find the greatest value. Uh, there's a great study out of, out of Harvard, a guy named Jeremy Jameson, who wrote a paragraph that talked about uh, students about to take the graduate entrance exams. And instead of saying nervous, they used the word excited, right? So one group would read it with the word nervous, they didn't do as well. The, the, the group that read it with the word excited uh, actually did much better. They scored about 35 points higher. So when we look at research all along that line, replicated, 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 so much of it is about how, how can we reframe it as excitement? When you think about the, the, the physiological um, uh, uh, manifestations of stress, by the way, let's take a step back. Let's just define stress. Stress is something that happens when something that you care about is at stake. Hmm. If you don't care about it, you're not going to be stressed out. Right. So what happens? And I'm sure everyone out there can can think about a stressful moment for a second. Not that I want you to dwell on it right now, but feel free. Like your heart starts to beat a little faster. Your palms start to go sweaty. Your breath gets a little shorter. You might start to sweat. Right. How do you feel when you get excited about something? Your heart starts to be a little faster. Your palms might get a little sweaty. It's the same thing. So um, we have this like fight or flight that's 60,000 years old. Uh, and it starts to scare us with things that shouldn't scare us that much when we can reframe it as excitement, oh, this could be really interesting and start to see that's why my heart's beating in, uh, so quickly. That's why my breath is a little shorter because I have a great opportunity here because this matters to me. I think that's when you start to be able to reframe that stress. You see, there's a great quote by Steph Curry, which I can't say, uh, give you word for word, but basically he says, 
I get, I get nervous. I get anxious. I get butterflies. But when I feel those butterflies, I know it's because something great could happen. It is such a classic example of a healthy reframing of a stressful situation. So, um, so a lot of it is, is, is how we think about that. Right. And he and seems way, so stress-free. He seems so relaxed and so chill before a game. It's interesting that he reveals that inside he's feeling that. Very few coaches and athletes would tell you that being flatline or calm is the best way to go into a big game or a big match. I mean, I've seen it in tennis over the years. And I, I even in my job, I will try to create some butterflies, some stress when it's not there. The worst thing you can feel is nothing. You want to feel that excitement. You want to feel that nervous energy, be a little bit on edge. I'll just do it by underpreparing in some way and, and not having everything quite so scripted or written down and certainly not rehearsing it ahead of time so that the safety net is a little smaller and that gets that kind of, that gets that kind of proper adrenaline going, right? That, that applies to everyday life too. Sure. I mean, like we said, anything that you care about, right? So, you know, you, you, anytime you feel some stress, I shouldn't say any time. Let me back up for a second. If you're having about to have like surgery, if something is, you know, is dangerous like that, where you have very little control over, it's not necessarily, I want to get excited about this thing. Cause that's just fake. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a specialist in happyology. It's not about always being happy. You have to be aware as we talked about negative emotions are, can be good. Pessimism can be really valuable um, as the captain on the Titanic probably would have admitted. <laughs> right. Um, maybe there's an iceberg out there. And in this case, like there are some things we don't want to be excited about, right? But when we're about to perform, when it's us about to perform, as opposed to someone to say performing on us as, as in surgery, when it's us about to perform, those nerves, they can, they can alter our outcome in either a negative or a positive way. So learning to, to, to work that for yourself um, can be really important. And as you said, you don't want to flatline, right? So you underprepare just 2%. But I do the same thing in my talks. I always have a slide or two. I customize all my talks. I'm like, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say there. But it's really important. And that can be really nerve-wracking. But it can also be really exciting and make a difference to the overall performance. I bet that applies to more than just talks and and lectures and broadcasts and games, too. I mean, maybe you don't want to go into a sales call. You don't want to feel underprepared. But imagine engaging in someone with a conversation as opposed to reading a script in front of you. It's probably going to be better. If it's right. not so rote, right? If there's a little bit less security there. You're, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're touching on some really interesting stuff that goes on in, in research on mindfulness. So when it comes to sales, uh, there's, there's some terrific research. If you have a salesperson go out there with a script, you know, this was done door-to-door sales. They also have telephone sales because uh, I don't think door-to-door sales are, well, certainly not in the last two and a half years. Um, when they are told to be more excited, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. When they are told to do one thing that's that's new in their pitch and maybe something that someone else won't even notice pause here mm. uh speed up a little bit there change their tone of voice a little bit one thing that's novel to anything what they've done before their, their sales numbers go up right so when we're being mindful as opposed to just droning on that makes a big difference it it, it introduces novelty to us to, to to the to the client to the listener to the to the friend to the date right that can be really helpful you know you know, we're so wired, Dan, through time to get more efficient at things so that we can do it without even thinking. You do it subconsciously. Your, your, your autonomic nervous system does a lot of the important things. And I, and I think that, that that, to me, leads to boredom. And I, I, we were talking, and it's so interesting that intentionally doing something different 
um, less efficiently, but just breaking the mold, breaking the pattern in our everyday lives could be anything, yeah. literally anything. The way the way you know, cold shower versus hot shower, or just break breaking up those kinds of routines that just engages us and makes things a little sparkier. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we get into these habits, and some are really like habits are interesting, right? Sometimes we want to be mindless. Like you don't want to wake up in the morning and be like, hmm. What do I do now? Should I brush my teeth or should I not? Like, can you imagine going through your day? It's like usually that? pretty clear at my age exactly what you need to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and me both, actually. That's true. I don't have much of a choice, do we? But after that, when you have choices, yeah, I get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, yeah, you know, you want to be mindless. You want to, you know, and we have our routines. We get up. You do what you got to do. I do what I got to do. You know, but if we stop through every choice and every opportunity, it would be endless. It would drive us, literally drive us crazy. So you want to have certain habits, that certain routines that are really helpful. And it's interesting because if you look at folks who were successful in that way, you know, like Charles Dickens is one who had a very set routine. Maya Angelou had a very set routine she wrote out, which included like port, a glass of port. She wasn't writing well that day, but it was like, this is the time. This is the time. This is when I sleep. That's, that's really important to us. But being able to change things up, like you said, is going to be essential to our being able to be aware of the world, right? I mean, even if it's paying attention to one thing a stranger says to you, how, how are they, how are they, uh, how are they using their body language? That's so interesting. How much they use their hands, you know? How are they, how are they pitching their voice? Is it high? Is it low? Is it excited? So, so when we can start to focus on those little things, it takes us out of the kind of the droning on of stuff. If you drive a different way to work every day, if you if you um, if you uh, make sure that you want to say hello to a different person every day when you get to the office that you don't necessarily usually say hi to, right? Not only does that allow us to, to sort of stay on our toes, but I know we're going to get to relationships later, but it also allows us to realize that we're going to interact with different folks, with more people, maybe cultivate other friendships and relationships we might not have otherwise. And so that's one of the great benefits of um, keeping things fresh, keeping things new, um, and finding the right balance between the routine and and, and the novelty. Among your many titles, Dan, you're also Julian Lerner's dad. Your son Julian uh, is one of the stars. Best known as. <laughs> best known as now. He's yeah, 14, right? He, one of the stars of The Wonder Years uh, on ABC and also has a background in theater, very talented singer and musician. So he intersects with a couple things. One, I know, I mean, he played... Gavroche and Les Mis and other roles and all those actors around him will find ways, even though they do eight shows a week on Broadway, to do something different, do something subtle. I and mean, the audience may not notice. They may notice in a way they don't even appreciate because that performance seems to be more inspired and less autonomic than normal. But that that I find very interesting and in, in just the value of sort of changing things up and how it impacts other people in ways that they might not even know. But you'll yeah. just come across as more interesting, more engaged. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. It's one of the earliest lessons I remember him learning. Uh, he was doing a show out in New Jersey uh, called Last Days of Summer. And he was, uh, he was doing the lead. Uh, the co-lead was a guy named Bobby Conti, who's currently in company on Broadway. And had done, um, he's done a bunch of things. He's an incredibly talented young guy. And I remember him saying to Julian, you know, it's not about doing it the same every time. It's about finding something new every time you do it. And I saw that show seven or eight times. And every time, you know, Bobby was fresh. Bobby was new. And I, and I couldn't necessarily put my finger on it, but there was something about it that he had done differently that made such a difference. And I think you're going to get that in 
in a lot of different performers. And it's, it is a really interesting thing. You can do it because you're intentionally doing something new. You can also do it because you're, you're exploring a character and realizing that they're a little different. They've, they've evolved a bit more than last time. I think we could argue that the same thing would come into play whether you're announcing or you are working in an office or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're a teacher. Like if you are mindful about these things, how are you different as a doctor, lawyer, teacher, announcer, you name it, than you were yesterday? Because you learned something yesterday. If you thought about it, like, how am I different today? And it's, it's one of the things that I ask Julian after every lesson, which is what's one thing that you do differently now? Doesn't have to be huge. One thing, one thing. And it could be something as small as um, I stand a little differently when I sing, or I felt a little different in my, you know, in my breathing when I was singing that passage. And I was like, cool. Like, that's it. One little thing. And I think today, to your point, things changed. Things have changed so much. And a lot of folks are expecting huge change and they're expecting huge change fast. Mm-hmm. But I, I always say that um, uh, Taylor Swift ruined your life right now. <laughs> that, big caveat, because I said that last week and I almost had a student slap me. Um, but I was like, <laughs> let, let me be real clear. And Taylor, if you're listening, I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. Um, but uh, what I mean is that the stories were told in our culture indicate that she was a superstar from the second she picked a guitar, guitar. that Bill Gates was a genius from the second he laid his hands on a computer keyboard, right? That Chris Fowler was, you know, (laughs) it's not, no, 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 no. Skip over that. (laughs) Skip over. (laughs) You don't even know where I'm going. It could have to do with your morning routine. So, um, (laughs) but we don't talk about the work they put in. We don't talk about the fact that she practiced for all those years. We don't talk about the fact that he got his hands on a computer, even I think like breaking into like a local library to like do it for all those years. And so too often we're like, well, I should be really good, really fast, but it's the little things. It's the little improvements we make on a daily basis. That I, I wish we would talk about more and it's the failures. You know, at some point Taylor Swift fell on her face, just like Julian literally fell flat on his face in front of 3000 audience members in Les Mis in Chicago. And that was the best lesson maybe of all tour. You know, when I met up at the stage door and he was crying and I was like, what'd you do after you fell on your face? He's like, I got up and I kept going. I was like, that's right. And you rocked the rest of the show. Don't forget that. So we don't talk about failure enough. I don't think we don't talk about the little things. We don't talk about the hard work. It's like, boom, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift, bam, Bill Gates, Bill Gates. And unfortunately, I think that that's real detriment to us trying to be happy and or trying to be successful. Yeah, I don't want to. We could go off on the perils of instant gratification versus appreciating delayed and trying to circumvent the ten thousand hour rule to master something. I that, that that's there's whole podcast series and books on oh, that, yeah. but that's it's, right. Right. it's well taken. One last Julian story. You were telling me, and this applies to reframing nerves as excitement. So he's never sung the national anthem in public. And the Rangers ask him to come to Madison Square freaking garden, the world's most famous arena, and sing the anthem before a game the other day. I mean, that is, it's a hard song to sing, even though he's yep. talented, even though he's done all kinds of stuff in show business. It's MSG yeah. and it's the anthem. I mean, how, how did you see him on the spot sort of convert nerves to belting out a great version of that? Yeah, you know, I mean, he worked incredibly hard on that. And to be totally frank, he was super nervous about that. You know, he, you're right. It, 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 he kept asking us questions. Well, how many people are going to be there? And, and what's it going to sound like? And the reverb, I've never been in a place like that. And it, what, what became apparent throughout the week, it was a lot of it was about the unknown. 
What does it look like to stand in an arena with 18,000 seats? What does it sound like when you have reverb? And I've never been to a place like that. And so he was nervous and asking a lot of questions and anxious and understandably so. Um, and uh, he called me right after soundcheck. He, you know, he and, he and uh, Aaron went uh, to soundcheck about two hours earlier and I was gonna come just after soundcheck and he called me and he had switched completely. Dad, it's amazing. The reverb <laughs> is really cool and the seats are so cool. And you know, he had done it as a run through in the space, he had heard it. You know, and now he's like, oh, the questions I had are gone. He still had a few questions. What are they gonna be doing when I'm singing kind of things? Like buddy, they're hockey fans. They're probably be screaming like, you know, like, swear words, but that's okay. Right. Like, you know, um, or they're going to be screaming, let's go Rangers, which is, which is what they did actually. So um, it calmed him down. It, I'm sorry. It didn't calm down. It, it flipped him from the nerves to this enormous level of excitement. Right. And he was still bouncing around the whole thing, but it was a very, very different way. He was, couldn't wait to get out there. He's really looking forward to it. He and I have a word. Um, which we started on the Les Mis tour. And actually, I, uh, my, my, my buddy, Alan, who I teach with, and I wrote the book with, uh, he's, he used it with his daughter too. We don't talk about being nervous. We talk about being nervous-sighted. So when we're nervous-sighted, it's a little bit of both. And what he said to me, and I remember, because I got to the garden, he looked at me and he goes, Dad, I'm excited nervous. And that's why I know he's flipped. Because I've taught him, it is okay to be nervous. You will be nervous. You got to frame it as excitement. So now excited nervous is our word. And that's where he had flipped. It was, that's it was right. Sad. You said two things, though. He worked hard, so he was prepared. The yeah. clarity brought confidence. Once he realized, okay, the reverb, the external stuff that we cannot control going into the experience, right? you get some clarity about that. You still can't control it, but you, right. you know what to expect. And then you can just say, okay, my part. My part, I'm not nervous about. I'm excited about because I've done the preparation. And that, I think, is what I try to drill to anybody. Your preparation is confidence. You're not going to be able to control a fraction of the things. I think control is largely an illusion, but you can control what you do and how you react when yeah. when curveballs come at you. That that's that's powerful stuff. I don't you know it's, I, I almost go back to and you're right. It's about controlling what, what it's about focusing on what you can control. And you know I go back to what you said when you prepare for uh, prepared to to do a uh, to be on air or I I prepared to, to give a talk there's a certain percentage, a small percentage that we want to be unknown, right? Uh, but we don't want it to be a huge percentage, right? And so for Julian, I think for a lot of folks out there, if you can, if you can sort of get your hands around, you know, a high percentage of things, know that the percentage that you can't is lower, then you're going to be okay. It's when you, there's too much unknown, too much that you really have no idea what's coming at you, where it can really tip back into nerves as opposed to excitement relationships. A lot of the things we talked about play into relationships because they're so important to us. And there's a, a phrase that you use in, in your book, You Thrive, and it's obviously targeted at young people who are preoccupied, as, as you might expect, with relationships. It's also new in college, but I think it applies to all of us, that it's tough to grow together when, when neither partner is growing as a person, or in other words, lacking a feeling of fulfillment. Talk about that, that just the, the navigation of an interpersonal relationship and, and how, you know, it's an entity into itself, but it's two individuals who have sure. to be also progressing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it, I, I don't want to um, be too cliche here, but there's that great quote from uh, uh, Saint-Exupéry uh, who wrote The Little Prince, uh, but did lots of other writing, which I really adore, where he, he says, as, as a couple, 
for folks who you know, folks who are getting married. Um, it's not it's not that we should hold hands and look into each other's eyes for the rest of our life. It's that we should hold hands and look out to the world to take in things together as we as we move forward. And that's so much uh, what we're talking about when it comes to comes to good relationships, right? I mean, what are the things that we can enjoy together? What are the things that we can each bring to a relationship separately? That's important. You're going to be different than I am in certain ways. And I want to embrace that difference, right? It's not about being the same person. It's about really not appreciating what someone else brings to this table. And often it's things you don't know. I want to know more about what my partner knows that I don't know. Like I get to learn things and I, I want to ask questions when it comes to what are the things that, that she enjoys? You know, what is it that gets her excited? What's it, what is it that gets her engaged? You know, and, it, and it's interesting because there is a process. Uh, one, one of the best ways we know to nurture healthy, positive relationships, whether we're talking about romantic relationships or friendships, um, but it's in, you and I chatted about this the other day, active, constructive responding, right? When someone comes to you with good news, um, you don't want to, you know, there are clear ways you don't want to respond. Although I will bet any listener out there, you've gotten this response. You walk, you roll up and you're like, I made a big sale today, had a great day. This happened. And, and the person you're telling go, either says, um, that's nice. <laughs> or, <laughs> or goes, yeah, I actually had a good day too. Or worst of all, says something like, you got promoted? Dude, you're going to have to work like an extra 10 hours a week and we're never going to see each other. And what's that all about? Right? So it's like, that's active, disruptive responding. But active, constructive is they come to you with the news and you start asking them questions. Tell me more about that. How did it feel when it actually happened? Well, who was there? Um, what, what were you thinking in the moment? Like, what did you want to do? What did, what did you do? And what we find in the research is that often when we do active constructive responding with someone, whether it's a partner or a friend or anybody, um, that, it, that, that interaction with them, with us, can feel even better than the moment that happened itself, right? So they get to relive it, but they get to relive it with someone they wanted to share with in the first wow, place. Wow, that's great. And over the course of about six weeks, when we do this consistently, there's closer bonding, there's greater trust, there's, there's um, uh, um, uh, greater warmth, right? So we get to cultivate these positive relationships in a way simply by helping extend that feeling. Right? Active, constructive response. I guess the level of authenticity that you employ that with could could indicate the health of the relationship. I mean, all of us can act yeah. just better when it's authentic. But let's talk about the inevitable challenges for relationships. And communication breakdowns. You, you call them thinking traps and we're going to give people tools on how to break out of them. But you, you tell, you talk about personalizing labeling. Right. We, right. Everybody I think can understand what, what that means in terms of a, a conflict in a relationship. What are some of the others? So thinking traps are basically these, these um, ways that our mind work that we are not necessarily conscious of. Right. So if you have ever, um, if you have ever, gotten some sort of news let me give you an example you text somebody someone you care about maybe someone you're dating or wanting to date and you see the three dots pop up <laughs> and then they disappear <laughs> everybody listening has, has experienced that and like dan what do i do <laughs> right so you have different ways to think about it you could and as chris referred to you could catastrophize they hate me they found out that I am a terrible person uh, and they never want to see me again. That would be catastrophizing. You could, um, 
uh, have a negative filter, which is to be like, just to start thinking not about you, but but what what could be going on? What could be bad here? What did I do? What did I do? It could be black and white thinking. Um, they again, they hate me in that regard, or they love me. It's either one or the other. It's it's nothing in between. So we don't necessarily you can't put our finger on this to be like, oh, I catastrophize, or I have black and white thinking, or I I personalize, right? But they happen, and they happen all the time. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, a, of another good example for listeners out there. Um, I like what you, you're using mind reading, though. Right. Some of the, some of that stuff comes from and listen, couples who know each other well, always believe that we can think what the yes. other person is they, with with clarity. And I maybe maybe you've had an occasional disagreement. J- Jennifer and I, you know, maybe one and a half disagreements in 20 some years. But 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 sometimes you want to say you're the authority on lots of things. You're yeah. wise in so many areas, but you are not the authority on what I am thinking. And right. I try to remember that in, in, in conversations and conflicts, not just, not just in a marriage, but any kind of relationship or business relationship either. You, you're not able to read the other person's mind, yet we all think we can, and we know exactly what they're up to and why, why they did this or that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And yet we still do it, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> okay. like how do you break us- out of it? How, how, what, what's the tool to not do that? <laughs> So that, that's a great question. And I would say, ask a question, right? If, if you need to ask clarifying questions, if you're talking about mind reading, if you genuinely believe that, you know, that this person is thinking X, ask them a question about that. Is what you're saying, if, I mean, if what I'm hearing, I think, is that you're saying that you would rather do this than that, right? And they might say, yeah, that's exactly it. But there's a good chance they're going to go, that's not actually what I'm saying. That's not, that's what you're hearing. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. All right. Good. Cause I, I was, I was thinking this is what you're saying. So clarify this for me because I'm not clear on this right now. We don't tend to ask clarifying questions. We tend to jump from assumption to assumptions, how our minds work. It's how we've evolved to be right to in a, in a, in, a, in order to survive somehow we need to have sort of these rules. But when we make those assumptions about how other people are thinking, we get into trouble. So asking a clarifying question like that can be really, really helpful. Right. Um, something when we talk about the uh, the three dots on the phone, for example, well, let's think about three other possibilities. Right? If we go directly to catastrophizing, to saying um, they clearly hate me, right? What are three <laughs> things going to happen? Right? They could have been distracted. They could be at work. They could be driving, and they had to put their phone down if they really want, really, really want, really wanted to answer us. Their phone could have run out of batteries. They want to say just the right thing because they really like us and they wanted to pull back for a second. So they made sure they did that. You know, there's an exercise and it's, it's, it's very closely related to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just called ABCD. The A is, you know, what's the activating event? I get three dots. The B is what do you believe? They hate me. The C is what's the consequence? I'm really feeling horrible about this. The D is the dispute. What are three things you can think of? And so everything that we talk about today, I'd argue almost everything that we're talking about in positive and performance psychologies requires some practice. And so if you are someone who tends to catastrophize, then choose three things a day, right? Identify when you've done it in the past, right? It's with the three dots. It's before I have a sales meeting. It's before I get on the field, right? It's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Oh, wait a second. Let me think of three other possible um, uh, explanations. And what we're really doing is we're rewiring our brain to process differently. It's not easy the first time. It's going to feel weird the first time because this is stupid. And of course, they don't like me because that's what I've been thinking for the last 50 years, right? Is that when people, people don't get back to me, they clearly don't like me. Um, but over the course of about a month, 
what we're doing is re, we're rewiring our brains to see the world differently. And while it's a very, uh, it, it's a, it can be a, a challenging um, exercise in the beginning, as the weeks go on, it becomes more and more natural. You find that you might not even start to think about having to do it because you, you will start naturally going to, oh, they must be busy with something else. I'm sure they'll get back to me later. Uh, Most things worth working towards are challenging, by the way. This, the, I, if you're going to give me three things that, you, boom, you can change in a second, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to doubt the usefulness of them. How do we catch ourselves, Dan, in, 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 in conflict, with, you know, personalizing or hyperbolizing and say, you never, you always, or they always. It, those kinds of words to me um, seem fraught in trying to resolve a conflict as opposed to, like, inflame yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some real challenges here with that because um, these words are loaded for different people. So you always do X, right? As, and it means for that person, like they're seeing you a very specific way. What are three other words you can use to describe either why you do what you do or to describe what it is that you do? So you always clam up when we're having a tough time in conversations, right? Because, and maybe I'm, maybe I say this to you, Chris, you always clam up when we're having an argument, right? And maybe what I'm assuming is that um, you're giving up on that argument, right? And if I ask you, well, what are three, what are three things that are happening here? You might say, look, I, I need to think about things before I respond. That's important to me. I need to process things. Mm -hmm. And you being more of an extrovert than I am, you want to talk about things out loud because that's how you process. It may be how you process things. So when we start to really explore what is happening there, what that label is, right? You are a, um, uh, you're a procrastinator, right? Like no one's a procrastinator. People procrastinate. <laughs> so it might do more often than others, but well, let's talk about what's happening there. Well, I really don't want to do that. Why not? Because it's not an activity I enjoy. Oh, I always thought you enjoyed it. No, I really don't. That's why I sort of like, I do other things before I get there. I never realized that. So we've just gone from a label of you are a procrastinator to a, I procrastinate to, I procrastinate about this to this is why I procrastinate about this. And we're able to now have a conversation that's far more productive by saying, I thought that you enjoyed or whatever it might be. And we learn more about each other. That's where it's really at. Pointing fingers, it, it stops the conversation. It's telling them what they are as opposed to asking them what's going on. Yeah, that's that's really that's great stuff. I I I, I will try to employ some of those things going forward. Um, I, one of the other parts of relationship, the real fun part, is passion, and passion takes different forms. And you said that passion is your favorite topic to teach. It's it, what you. It's kind of the grand finale, right, of the of the science of happiness at the end there. But but and there's different kinds of passion, and I think that's what's important. And this was eye-opening when I, when I read your book, because you, you tend to think, oh, passion is just healthy. It's great. You know, you, passion for, for your relationships and for life and for your work and for your hobbies. What could be bad about passion? But there are different types. There are two types, very distinctive types of passion. One is called harmonious passion. Um, and that, as it sounds, is something that you are passionate about, something you have an intense desire or enthusiasm for that fits into with harmony to the rest of your life. Right, you do it, but you also have other things going on. And the other type is obsessive passion. And that is, as we, as, as, it, as the title indicates, something that you really can't let go of. And not only when, um, when you're in the activity, but when you leave the activity, if you have an obsessive passion for 
playing golf. You might be sitting at your dinner table with your three kids and your partner, and you're still thinking about golf. Mm -hmm. And you might be feeling a little guilty that you're not out there practicing because you could be getting better and you could be beating other people and you could be the best. Obsessive passion is rooted in uh, the, the, the two passions are very different. And I think they translate well into, as we're talking about relationships with harmonious passion, it's rooted in something that you love. Well, look, everyone, on, everyone listening right now, other than the, the, the four-year-olds and younger have been five years old, right? I love using five-year-olds as an example, because we either we have them or we've been one. And you look <laughs> at a five-year-old and a five-year-old, they get up in the morning. They're like, Boop, time to play with Legos. Boop, time to finger paint, Boop, time to play kickball, whatever it might be. They know what they want to do and they do it because they love it. But, and a lot of us still do that with our work if we're super lucky to have something that we have a harmonious passion for. With obsessive passion, it tends to be rooted in status and that can be in relationships or work, money, uh, glory, um, uh, reputation, right? So uh, I have a bunch of friends who uh, work at, uh, at a well-known um, uh, investment bank. We won't name it here. We'll just we'll say that it rhymes with um, old man snacks. And- uh, <laughs> I think I got it, yeah. <laughs> you got that one? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not that they dislike their work, but the primary reason that they do it is the salary is great. The perks are great. The business card is, is pretty prestigious. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily say they love their work. I do, however, have one friend who works there, and he was there for 20 years. And I said, what is it about this that you love? And he goes, dude, I'm a math geek. I went to MIT. Like, I get to solve problem sets. You know, yeah, there's red tape. And yes, there are, there are politics to go on but I get to do something that I genuinely enjoy doing. And then I get to go home and I'm in a good mood and I get to spend time with my family. You know, so the two passions are very different in how we explore them and whether we can leave them at the door or whether we can't leave them at the door. And back to relationships, we all know people who started dating someone and they disappeared. They're like, sorry, I'm spending time with Sheila all the time because I'm like obsessed with this relationship as opposed to someone who started dating someone and, and, and maybe ended up, marrying them, but there's still time for their friends. There's still time for other things, maybe less, understandably, but there's still a part of that pie that we spend doing other activities, hobbies, right? So I, I got to emphasize that passion does not have to be, uh, a, it doesn't have to be work, clearly. It could be, it could be passionate about your work, but you can be passionate about gardening or cooking or riding your bike or reading. You know, the thing about passion and we're doing, you know, we could do again, a whole season on passion, but one of the things that fascinates me is when people have a harmonious passion, let's say it is for reading or gardening or cooking, as long as they're able to build that into their lives on a regular basis, they are happier. They tend to be happier overall. They tend to be rated as more likely, less likely to lie, cheat and steal in the workplace, more trustworthy in the workplace, warmer. They tend to enjoy other things like work, even if their passion isn't work. So as long as you find a passion you can, pursue harmoniously, it tends to change through a lot of things in our life, not just the time that we pursue the passion. So there are, and by the way, you know, since we want people to walk away with takeaways today, there's some really interesting ways to go about doing this. Um, there, uh, me meaning is a really key point. And if you look at, you see, so you can look at some well-known people who are clearly passionate. You can look at someone like Steve Jobs versus um, Richard Branson. Right, both enormously successful people, enormously successful in so many ways. You can question whether one is happy. You know, one tends that we tend to think he's a little less happy, or he was happy when he was with mm -hmm. us. And Branson seems to be a happier guy. But when they talk about passion, it's interesting because Jobs says 
you have to be passionate. You have to be irrational because passion, pursuing a passion is irrational, mm-hmm. right? Which means you have to be a little out there. Branson says you should pursue your passion in a way that works for the world and you. And that is so key when it works for the world, because now we're talking about meaning and meaning is so much at the root of our ability to have well-being, meaning we, we, we um, define as, as the connection to something larger than ourselves. So when we ask a question about a pursuit, maybe it's your work, maybe it's a hobby. How does your work help make the world a better place? How does, the, how does your work help other people? The research shows that our levels of meaning, when we discuss that, tend to go up. Firefighters take it back to the firehouse. All of a sudden, their meaning goes up. Emergency uh, first responders take it back to the hospital. Meaning goes up. Teachers take it back to the, the teacher's lounge. How does the work that we do, if we have genuine conversations or journal on it or have family discussions, meaning tends to rise. And we can incorporate meaning into our pursuit of passion. All of a sudden, it's not about me, 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 my golf game, my golf game, me being the best. It's about how am I engaging with others, too? That brings us back to relationships as well, which is key, which is I'm able to pursue this with other people, knowing I'm doing good for other people, knowing that I'm helping make the world a better place. That's such a a win-win-win that we're able to pursue our passion very differently in a richer way with other folks. Sometimes you have to stop and think and maybe get slightly creative to figure out where the meaning is. When you're a firefighter or a teacher or a surgeon, it's a little more obvious that you're having a direct and profound benefit to any number of people every day. Um, but meaning can be found in lots of places. And, you know, if you do what I do, you, you tend to try to convince yourself when, when you're in those moments that what you, what you do has meaning because it brings happiness to people, but almost anybody, if you're a little bit creative, I think you can find that kind of meaning. Dan, last thing here, we talk about passion. How can it be stoked if someone listening is feeling like they don't have requisite passion for anything right now? You're just sort of like, rudderless and passionless, which I, I don't think is a, a rare state of affairs for a lot of people right now. Not at all. Not uncommon. No way. You know, it's one of the you know rare data points you have a hundred percent answer on when you ask 535 respondents that they think that passion is an essential part of living a fulfilling life. 100% of them say yes. And yet not all of them have passion. So that is a huge challenge. Uh, the fact that, um, uh, that not everyone has one, or maybe they had one and it was obsessive and they burned out. What do I do now? So there's some myths about passion, which are, which, which are, are far too persuasive. People tend to think overwhelmingly that passion is a thunderbolt moment, right? I walked by the guitar shop, saw that guitar and knew I was going to be the greatest guitar player in history, said nobody ever, except for maybe Jimi Hendrix, right? So, you know, but we tend to think that's it. I'm going to find it tomorrow. Oh, it's going to happen there. Passion's overwhelmingly uh, take about three years to develop, hmm. right? So you got to be patient and they start as a spark. So if someone comes to me and said, says, I'm interested in French. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not like move to France. You know, I'm like, okay, you should take French 101. And if you like French or, or take a, you know, if you're not in college, take a French class, take an online French class. Sure. If it's something that's interesting for you, don't jump in completely, but rather see how that goes. You might find yourself taking another class. You may then find yourself taking two classes in a row, and maybe you, you wind your way towards uh, that kind of passion. But you know, I, going back to Julian, I remember he was a gymnast when he was young. And I remember about three years in, people would ask him what he does. And he'd say, I do gymnastics. About three years in, he said, I am a gymnast, which is when you start to identify as that. Um, and that's a really healthy progression. Because you're taking your time, you're learning how to integrate something that you're interested in 
into the rest of your life rather than wanting it so bad that it has to dominate and push everything off to the side. That's the recipe for a far more harmonious passion. And by the way, and Chris, I think you and I talked about this the other day, most people who have a harmonious passion have more than one because, because they know what the routine is to integrate an interest, maybe not even yet a passion, an interest into their lives. They can do it with something else too. And you start to bring these multiple passions together harmoniously and it becomes really quite special. The way that, you know, one of the key takeaways from the class, and this is something for folks here, um, is that the, the reason why obsessive passions, and this is, this is my own kind of metaphor, are so dangerous is because it's like you're living your life on one pillar. Mm. And God forbid something should happen to that pillar. If it's a little chip, a little nick, you have nowhere else to go. If you have multiple pillars, let's say it's gardening and cooking and tennis and family, right? You have a bad day on the court or you have a bad day at work. I'm going to go back to my house where I love my family about whom I'm passionate. I get to go to the garden and tomorrow's another day. It almost goes back to the pessimistic, uh, the optimistic explanatory stuff. Tomorrow's another day. I can go back to work. I can get back on the horse. It's okay. So being able to cultivate multiple interests, you know, slowly, carefully with other people, potentially, that's the path where you're really integrating a, the things you like positive emotion, B, engagement, because you're not giving yourself too much pressure. Uh, You're cultivating relationships, which are key. You have some meaning there, potentially, because you're able to see how it works with the world. And you're actually getting things done. You're you're, you're achieving at a certain level, too. And that, I would say, is a much richer way of coming at not just happiness, but overall well-being, which is having more than just the happiness. It's having some other things that are there for you both in good times and, and in challenging times. So, Dan, we've covered a lot of ground here, a lot of different topics. Still just the tip of the iceberg. I invite people yeah. to read You okay. Thrive and attend one of your talks. But if you could give some key takeaways, which would come under the heading of sort of well-being, which is what we all want to be about. Absolutely. And, you know, all of these are going to be about rewiring, as I mentioned before, rewiring how your brain works. So they're not I'm not going to say they're easy. And by the way, they're not all going to work for everybody. Right. That's if, if I said they're all going to work for everyone, I'd be talking about self-help. But there's a chance that you're going to find one, two, maybe three of these that do work. And some of them will work today and some of them will work next year. One would be a gratitude journal. And that is real simple. Uh, every night, every night you write down three things you're grateful for and why. Uh, no more than five minutes. Each one's a sentence. I'm grateful for my partner because when I am very specific, I'm grateful for my partner because when I got home and had a rough day, they were there to listen to me, period, the end. I'm grateful for the fact that I live next to the woods because I got to take a long, good, calming walk today, period, the end. Now, you write three of those at night, and over the course of about a month, what we do is we're rewiring our brain to see the world differently. You might not have appreciated that force before or your partner in that way before, but and it might be tough at first. But over the course of about 30 days, our overall levels of positive emotions, which you talked about earlier in the show, tends to rise because we're seeing the world differently. So that's one. Um, Five minutes or less. Uh, One that takes officially six minutes is breathing. Um, If you take twice a day, three minutes to do deep belly breaths, not like your standard breaths, just sitting there breathing, but deep into your diaphragm, super deep breaths and follow the breaths in and out, aka in parentheses, mindfulness meditation, um, we find that uh, not only do our levels of positive emotions go up, but our levels of stress go down, right? So we have this opportunity not only to raise positive emotion, as I said, I'm not like Dr. Happyology, 
but also to address challenging emotions. And that's really important, and especially at a time like now when we're getting through stressful times. And that becomes, again, like anything else, a practice. You do it daily, and it, you have to remind yourself or set a timer or set an alarm, but you start to do that more naturally um, in your life at challenging times. So you start to practice that. You said belly breathing. That, that, that people think about breathing from the bottom up, right? Because it actually has a physical effect. It's not just breathing deeply in your lungs, right? You want, you want the whole torso exactly. involved. That's exactly it. That's And that kind of breathing affects something called our vagus nerve, which is a nerve that runs through our body. It runs through, um, it touches all of our organs. So it helps us regulate our responses. And that's really key. Like anyone out there who's ever had a snap response, if you had a snap response at your kid or at a colleague, or you just, you know, and you just regret it later, sometimes it gives us the chance to just pause and go, oh, I'm going to take a moment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a breath. And, that, and then, then we respond very differently because we've trained ourselves to do this and it affects our organs, this vagus nerve, so on and so forth. Uh, and finally, you know, I, I got to say my favorite is the one I give you, and that is to go to uh, either the website that, uh, that we'll give you, um, the, the www.youthrive, that's letter U, T-H-R-I-V-E dot info, or go to viainstitute.org, V-I-A, institute.org and take the assessment for signature strengths for character strengths because when you get the results look at the ones that really resound for you share them with a friend or family member to really figure out like why is bravery a strength how do you identify it or humor or justice or wisdom or appreciation of beauty and mastery because we find that when we use those in a new way every day pick one Right, mine's appreciation of beauty and mastery. I have to read some Whitman or look at a piece of beautiful art or watch an amazing athlete. I, you know, it elevates me. It makes my day. We find that when we do that once a day uh, in a new way every day, our level of overall well-being can shoot through the roof. And also it feels amazing. So doing that can be a wonderful overall uh, practice as well. And again, you'll see the difference with that pretty quickly often, um, but certainly after a couple of weeks. And that's, uh, that's just a wonderful science-based, but really enjoyable way to look at well-being as well. Very grateful to Dan Lerner for his expertise and his wisdom and hope that this helped you in your pursuit of greater well-being and happiness. Now, for a much deeper dive, I do highly recommend Dan's book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life on Audible. If you want to lean into some of these ideas, I suggest you go to the website, you, the letter U, thrive.info. That's where they have the questionnaire, the survey that's going to give you insight on how to identify and use your character strengths. Use the resources tab. I found it very useful. As always, grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichelt for his editing skills. Grateful to you for listening. Always appreciate the support and the feedback. I'll talk to you soon.